Welcome back to a special Victory Lap edition of The Horse Race, your weekly look at the top elections and campaigns in Massachusetts. I'm Steve Cazella, president of the Massing Polling Group. And I'm Lauren Dzenski, author of the Politico Massachusetts Playbook. And in case you have missed it, this is actually my last episode of The Horse Race. Which is super sad, but why we're calling it The Victory Lap, because we're going to try to be happy for at least the next 40 minutes or so. Oh, Steve, I thought you were just going to try and euthanize me on the track like every other horse. <laughs> that is typically what are, what's done with horses, and we actually had this whole plan where we are going to have gag glue bottle made with the horse race logo on it or something like that. (laughs) Ship you off to the glue factory. It's very extensive. (laughs) CNN is going to love that. (laughs) Seriously, this is Lauren's last week. And we're actually going to talk a little bit more about that at the end of the show in our Something to Watch segment because it's all going to be dedicated to our longtime and now almost not co-host anymore, Lauren Dzenski. So more on that in a little bit. But first, the perennial question, what are we doing here this week? Yes, what are we doing here this week? We are talking about this result in the third congressional district, we finally have a Democratic nominee to take on Republican Rick Green in the race to replace Congresswoman Nikki Songus. It took two weeks. There was a recount. It was close. But we have the result, and Chris Lisinski of the Lowell Sun returns to the podcast to help us break down what exactly happened. We have many time guests of the podcast, Chris Lisinski, so looking forward to that. We also have the former chair of the Massachusetts Democratic Party, John Walsh. He was also involved up in the third, particularly with the specifically with the Dan Coe campaign. He's also been making some news about 2020. He started a pack which is, depending on how you interpret it, at least linked with Deval Patrick. You know, there's always sort of the awkward dance where you have to pretend like yeah, they can't, the candidate they're not has nothing actually, to do with it. <laughs> actually involved. So I I look forward to having John explain that a little bit more closely because that nuance, I think, is really important to understand how all of these interest groups work. And then finally, we return to the actual ballot that is in front of voters this November. We have Ballot Question Bureau Chief George Cronin returning to talk about the three ballot questions that voters will actually be able to weigh in on this November. All right. Well, let's get started. Let's do it. We finally have closure in the 3rd Congressional District, which, just to remind folks, covers a swath of cities and towns north of Boston. This is the one where we had a dozen or so candidates at one point competing for the Democratic primary. Well, it's over now. And to break it down for us, we have many-time guest of the pod, Chris Lezinski, High Templar of Merrimack Valley Political Intrigue. Chris has covered the 3rd Congressional race from the start for the Lowell Sun, and he returns by phone to give us the rundown of the recount madness. Chris, welcome back to the horse race. Hi, guys. It's my pleasure to be back. So the recount's over. Tell us quickly what were some high-level findings Uh, What did the numbers show us? You know, the final numbers ended up being pretty close to the initial results. There were only a handful of votes picked up in most communities, a lot picked up in Lowell. But what happened was Lori Trahan actually gained a a slight edge in the margin that was initially reported, you know, uh, when the results were first certified before the recount. She led by 122 votes. After the recount, that grew to 145. So for those of you interested in the percent, her margin of victory went from 0.15% to 0.17%. But now we know after a recount that uh, the Secretary of State is confident that this is absolutely the result. There were a couple of hiccups uh, uh, here in Lowell itself. The Secretary of State had some concerns over the administrative end of Lowell's election division. He actually got closely involved in the recount itself to be sure that it was administered properly. Uh, it seemed for some time like Danco had some issues with that. But, uh, you know, now that the dust is settled, uh, he has conceded and we are all moving forward here uh, with Lori Trahan as the Democratic nominee. I want to kind of get into the recount process itself. Danco, who requested the recount, he was within the, what, 0.5% thresholds to be able to do that. Why would he actually request a recount? Like, what? what's the 
thinking there. And like if Lori Trahan had the lead, why would why would Co assume that if there were a recount that would take place, why would that lead go away? Yeah, I, I think that it comes down to questions about the voting machines themselves and about some of the blanks. So what happens sometimes is if someone accidentally makes a, a mark in the wrong section on their ballot or you know doesn't fill in the circle entirely properly, you know, the, the vote counting machines can have issues with that and spit the ballot out either as a blank or, or spit it out for someone uh, in the elections division to try and count it by hand. But there can be, you know, uh, sometimes that can not make it into the final count uh, itself. So I think Danco looked at the numbers and said, OK, with 122 votes across the district, all I need to do is pick up, what, four votes in each of the 37 towns and communities. I think there's at least a realistic chance that, you know, I might be able to pick up four votes in each of those uh, from blanks that weren't counted that should have been counted in my favor or uh, or things like that. You know, Lori Trahan also filed for a recount is worth noting because before the provisional ballots were fully uh, counted and the results were finally certified, there was a chance that those would have actually swung the, the initial election in Coe's favor because that first margin was so razor thin. So really, it, it, it's about getting every single vote in this race out of the almost 89,000 that were cast counted properly and fully and instilling a higher degree of confidence in the in the outcome. Interesting. And now it's all wrapped up and we have a Democratic nominee, Lori Jahan. Um, tell us, though, before we turn to the general election, just a little bit about how the results actually broke down geographically. This was one of the this was this was a race where there was candidates from sort of around the district and there was the belief going into it that it could be, you know, a few votes in a few places that that, that determined things. How did the map look when all was said and done? Yeah, so Lori Trahan won big in the greater Lowell area, which which isn't particularly surprising given that she had such strong local roots. She's a Lowell High School graduate herself. Her campaign slogan was born, raised, stayed. So she really made her background right here in this area a central focus of her campaign. And she clearly got out the vote from here. You know, in Lowell alone, she beat Coe by almost 2,900 votes. And with a margin, a final margin of 145 votes, you know, that's made up uh, the 20 times over just in Lowell itself. So she won Lowell, she won Chelmsford, she won Westford, you know, most of the suburbs around Lowell, whereas uh, the biggest source of Coe's support came in the southern parts of the district around Hudson and in the western parts of the district uh, around Fishburg. You know, he kind of split the western area with Rufus Gifford um, and uh, and in the east in Andover. So if you kind of think of the district as a, a T, which is not exactly how it looks, Lori Trahan won right here in the center and Dan Coe won all of the areas around it. But it turns out that that center that that Trahan got was uh, was enough to put her over the top. Interesting. That kind of lends itself to this conversation about the expected geographic power bases that seemed to be this theory that it was kind of operating in, in how to predict how this outcome was going to look. I, I want to look at not specifically who won, but in terms of in terms of the top grouping of not necessarily the top two, but, you know, the top five. Were there any surprises in terms of who did better than expected or perhaps exceeded expectations? I think that Juana Matias did better than um, polls indicated she might do. And, you know, a lot of that 
relied on Lawrence, where she won by a huge margin. I think that Matias brought in 6,900 votes just for herself in Lawrence. No other candidate even cleared 1,000. And turnout of almost 10,000 votes in Lawrence is the highest it's ever been for a House primary like this. Um, I had written a story a couple weeks before the primary that she was really making that a key campaign strategy, trying to target predominantly Latino voters who might be overlooked by other campaigns or might, you know, initially be viewed as not likely to vote in a primary and telling and uh, connecting with them and getting them engaged in this process, making them a part of it. Clearly, it was a working strategy. And clearly, it's something that I think people underestimated and that other campaigns underestimated as a really uh, valuable source of votes and source of electoral power. It's just that she wasn't quite able to do enough in the rest of the district to uh, to turn that huge advantage into Lawrence into something else. So she was probably the biggest surprise. You know, Rufus Gifford and Barbara Italian both finished about where the most recent public polling uh, suggested they were, um, which could be a surprise that they didn't pick up any of that uh, big group of undecideds that we had uh, heading into this election. But, uh, you know, um, I would say that Matias was probably the biggest surprise among that field. Interesting. Uh, so I think then we we should shift to looking forward because this race actually isn't over yet. Uh, Lori Johan has a Republican opponent, Rick Green. Tell us about Rick Green and how we should expect the general election to shape up. Yeah. So Rick Green is, is a pretty well-known figure in the area. He's the co-founder of 1A Auto, which is a sort of an online auto parts retailer that's gained a lot of acclaim and a lot of fame by selling auto parts um, to, to consumers and also providing them with these instructional videos on how to install it themselves, thus circumventing the need to go to an auto shop. He's very personally wealthy. He uh, has a lot of clout in the district. His campaign is pretty well funded. I think he's sitting on something like seven or $800,000 in cash on hand at this point, just been waiting for an opponent, opponent in the Democratic primary. So he's going to put up a, a pretty competitive race um, by all means. I'm sure he's happy that he finally now knows who he can run against after uh, not facing a primary challenge himself and basically waiting for the better part of a year for the crowded Democratic primary to shake out. You know, yesterday uh, here in Lowell, Trahan hosted Democrats from across the state, uh, Nikki Songas herself, and almost every one of the opponents she beat in the Democratic primary for something called a unity event, where basically everyone rallied around her and uh, back, uh, announced their support for her in this general election, noting that it will probably be pretty competitive against Rick Green and hoping that Democrats could uh, all coalesce behind your hand. Yeah, I, Chris, I loved your write-up of that Unity event where you said that it felt like it was a high school reunion. Yeah, yeah. Um, I I, <laughs> I, I want to just talk about any potential shift in terms of the issues that are going to dominate this discussion. Trump was obviously a major component in the Democratic primary. Do you think Trump and the president is going to be as big of an issue in this general election discussion, or is it going to be something different? You know, I, I think it will be because there's a clearer contrast between the candidates now. It's not 10 people all agreeing that they think Trump is bad and that the, the whoever's elected to Congress should stand up to Trump. It'll be Laurie Trahan making that argument and Rick Green largely trying to avoid being dragged down by association with Trump, you know, as a Republican. He's been pretty quiet on that front. He, he's not necessarily a vocal Trump supporter in the same way that other Republican candidates across the state are. You know, when asked about it, he tries to, to shift the discussion and focus instead on third district specific issues. But, you know, I 
think that Trahan's campaign is going to see him as a Republican and try to link him to the Trump administration, given how unpopular Trump is among, uh, you know, particularly Democratic voters here in the third district. So yeah, I, I do think that that's going to continue to be a part of it. It's just that the way that discussion is approached is going to change because you have two more oppositional sides rather than 10 people all saying the same thing. Definitely. Well, we look forward to following your coverage on every twist and turn in this general election. Chris Lazinski, thank you for returning to the horse race. Anytime, guys. So it's not just elections in the ballot in November. We also have a set of three ballot questions. In recent cycles, we've seen huge spending, tons of ads, big campaigns. Spending in some of the campaigns has reached into the tens of millions of dollars. And ballot question campaigns are different than just election campaigns with two candidates running against each other. And here to tell us more is ballot question expert and many-time guest of the horse race, George Cronin. George, welcome back. Thank you. So there are three questions in the ballot this year, but two which will draw the most attention. The first one is one which would require certain staffing ratios of nurses to patients. What's this one about? This is um, an effort by the Nurses Association to establish patient-to-nurse limits. Um, on the no side is, is the hospitals, and obviously on the yes side is the nurses' union. It seems like kind of an odd issue for, for the ballot. I mean, this seems like a business issue. Why is this something that the voters will decide? It's a good question. It's an issue that the nurses have tried to get done in the state house for a number of years. Um, in fact, they had um, they almost went to the ballot with this question four years ago. It was resolved in the legislature, and they're back at it again this fall on the ballot. So it almost seems like this is another example of interest groups, advocates circumventing the legislature because they're not getting progress on issues that are important to them, and they're instead taken to the ballot. And this is an issue where a lot of money is being spent. What does that mean about how kind of high stakes this issue is? Like, will will the amount of money that could potentially be invested in here be indicative of people voting a certain way or kind of uh, voters responding to interest in this question? Awareness will be raised as a result of the advertising. The resources that will go into both the yes and the no side will be used for a couple of different things. They'll they'll go into a statewide field operation. They'll go into a paid advertising effort. So it's fair to say that voters will be aware of ballot question one come November. They'll, They'll have seen TV ads. They'll have heard radio ads. They'll have seen online ads. So there'll be a high level of awareness. And that's the goal of both sides, to educate voters on their side of the issue. So in 2016, we saw two of the most expensive ballot questions in the history of the state. Um, And I've heard some discussion that the nurse, that this question one might actually reach sort of into the stratosphere, even close to what we saw in 2016. What are you hearing about that? It's unclear at this point. It's got the potential. In 2016, the charter schools question broke the record. They spent $44 million in total. And as we saw with last week's filing or or the recent filing on question one, there's about $12 million there. So there's, there's some ground to be made up, but it's clear that both sides want to bring resources to the table, and, and we might get close to that 2016 charter school. Tomorrow is the next filing. The ballot questions will have to file their campaign finance report, so we'll see what this next kind of iteration of spending looks like. That, that's good to keep in mind, good to be aware of. Um, let's talk a little bit about what potential strategy could look like on either side. It, essentially, what, what should we be able to look for over the next six weeks until Election Day, just wall-to-wall? 
paywall ads on every single surface that that either advocacy side can can possibly get to voters. What, what's in store? The yes side it will likely be trying to mobilize its base, the nurses union, everybody associated with the nurses union. The no side, they have their own base. The hospitals have uh, tremendous assets, but they'll also be trying to raise confusion and doubt. That tends to benefit the no side. And that strategy kind of lines up perfectly what, we, what we've seen recently for anybody that's seen the lawn signs. The no side says nurses say no. The yes side says nurses say yes. So there, there's a lot of confusion. And the signs actually look almost identical. They like do. You, you'd have to look twice to even see which side the sign actually yeah. represents. Yeah, they're very similar. And that's yeah. that's probably by design. Yeah, I didn't even realize that there were two signs out there. I just thought there was one. Yeah, because they look <laughs> exactly the same. Um, but but I want to uh, focus a bit on one of the points you just made, which is what a no side tries to do in ballot campaigns, because it's something you've said in the past about how no sides tend to approach these things as far as raising confusion. Tell us more about that. If the no side can raise confusion and doubt, the voter will tend to vote no because the, the no side is the status quo. If they're confused about a particular measure, then the safe place to go is the no side. So it's incumbent upon the no side to raise as much confusion and doubt while they're getting their narrative out to try to cause confusion, which will ultimately help and benefit the no side. Interesting. I want to transition to question three. This specifically would repeal the state's transgender public accommodations law. How did this question come about? This is an initiative referendum, essentially a repeal referendum. There were signatures gathered at the beginning of the process, and there were uh, a group of folks that, that wanted to repeal this law that passed in the legislature in 2016. They went through the process and now we're left with a ballot question that seeks to repeal the transgender law. So sort of bringing a couple threads together, the yes and the no side are actually different than what might be expected for question three. Tell us, first of all, why that's the case and then just remind people or break down what a yes vote in this one actually means. That's a good question and an interesting point. In this in this case, if you want to repeal the law, you vote no. If you want to uphold the law, you vote yes. It's because it's a requirement. Even if you want to repeal a law, the question is still asked on the ballot, would you support a particular law? So that's the way the question is framed, and it's a repeal, but you'd vote yes to uphold and support the law. So does that have any impact then on the idea of no being the status quo? Because in this case, yes is the status quo. So do you just sort of flip the strategy? And in this this case, I guess it would be the yes side tries to keep the status quo? Or how does that impact what you just described for the nurse's question? The the yes-no confusion dynamic tends to work when one side has superior resources and they can create the confusion or if there's a debate. Right now in question three, it's been kind of quiet in comparison to question one. There hasn't been a whole lot of debate. There hasn't been a whole lot of public discussion. The latest poll that came out today had question three up 73-17. That's largely because when voters are asked would they support yes or no, typically they'll support a yes if they haven't heard both sides' arguments. And up until now, um, the electorate really hasn't heard a whole lot about question three. So unless the no side mounts a campaign, the yes side is well positioned to continue that momentum and hold that lead. Talk a little bit about how the yes side is selected. Who who determines what 
side is a yes? Who determines what side is a no? How does the phrasing of the ballot question itself come about? This is specifically because there's sort of some conspiracy theories out there on Twitter that this is, you know, by design that, you know, they selected yes when they did this question just to confuse people. But they didn't have a choice whether or not they wanted to be a yes or no. I mean, the fact is the repeal side is the no side. So they didn't have a choice. They initiated this initiative petition, the, the referendum petition. So they're in a position where they're seeking a no vote. So looking ahead to just the next few weeks, this is the period when ballot questions really tend to kick into high gear. What are some specific things you'll be watching to, to sort of assess the prospects of questions one and three? With seven weeks to go, there's a few things to keep an eye on. Again, tomorrow, September 20th, is the next filing for OCPF, the Office of Campaign Political Finance. We'll see which um, side brings more resources to the table. The other thing to keep an eye on is um, there's a period between October 20th and November 2nd. That's a period where the disclosures kick in. Any expenditure that's made uh, over or any receipt over $500 has to be disclosed. So I think a lot of folks, a lot of people that are watching these ballot question campaigns are waiting to see if the no side of question three will come in with some late resources, perhaps at the national level. And we'll be able to tell between October 20th and November 2nd, any any uh, donation over $500 will have to be disclosed within 72 hours. So if a big contribution comes in, the media will be able to pick up on it and, and we'll we'll see it. And this was seen as a potential national sort of test case um, in terms of transgender public accommodations bills. So that's one reason why we could potentially see some national resources coming in. Excellent. I'm looking forward to some following the money type coverage. George, thank you for laying out the landscape of what we can expect in the ballot question uh, horizon. Thanks, Lauren. Thanks, Steve. Great to be here. Our next guest, John Walsh, is a Massachusetts politico with deep knowledge of grassroots campaigning and happens to have ties to former Governor Deval Patrick. Now he's treasurer of the Reason to Believe PAC, started the summer with some other Deval Patrick alums, but not actually specifically uh, devoted to Deval Patrick. John Leetley has been involved on the campaigns of Dan Coe up in the 3rd Congressional District, said he warned for governor, and more. To say he's at the center of a lot of political developments in Massachusetts is a bit of an understatement. And John, I actually learned something while reading your Wikipedia entry yesterday Uh-oh. while I was preparing for this interview. It said that your political career began shortly after you graduated from college when you helped a friend who was running for Abington School Committee. Yes, we lost. <laughs> <laughs> Gotta start somewhere. It's <laughs> true. Right. And it will, nonetheless, now you're here. John, welcome to the horse race and thank you for joining us. Thanks for being here. Uh, so first, tell us about your role in the ME3 congressional race. We just had Chris Lesinski on from the Lowell Sun. So talk a little bit about uh, your work with Dan Coe. What did you do with his campaign? I was a consultant to the campaign on their grassroots and uh, organizing efforts and just generally involved with their strategy as they were going through an uh, extremely remarkable campaign, a fabulous candidate in a field that was historic. It was strong. It was diverse. It was a fabulous debate about issues. And and obviously came down to the wire. Now, what do you take away from, from that? I mean, it was, uh, I think, by any measure, an interesting field, a remarkable mm-hmm. field, diverse in almost every way you can think of. What is it? Is this sort of on trend for where the Democratic Party is, where it's going, or is it is it an outlier? Well, as an old white guy, there was only one old white guy in the field, a large field. That's something good. I mean, I think that's where the 
world is going. Uh, and uh, so I think it reflects the truth that the Democratic Party is a, has a deep talent pool of, of broad and diverse talent. And listen, great congratulations to Larger Hand, whose campaign was excellent and came in first by a nose, I guess you guys would say. And um, she ran a great campaign. And so did Dan Coe. And by the way, so did Rufus Gifford. So did Juana Matias. There's a, there was a lot of good politics going up in the third, and it's really good for us. And the great thing is they all come together after a tough fight. And because we have to be sure that the Republican nominee, uh, Rick Green, is not being sent to Congress. He's the, he's the prince of dark money. He is Mass Fiscal Alliance, and he is a solid vote, a regular donor to Donald Trump. And Congress may be a tip on one vote. And for Massachusetts, it cannot be him. Even though Charlie Baker endorsed him and Charlie Baker wants to send Donald Trump some more votes to Washington, we don't. And and so let's get behind Laura Trahan. Looking a bit more at the field, I, I just ran a few numbers this morning and found that 59% of the votes in the third went for women, similar actually to the percent who went for women here for DA in Suffolk County, similar to the percent that Ayanna Presley won in the seventh. And I saw also a statistic on Twitter that said for the first time, half of the non-incumbent candidates in the Democratic Party for Congress are women this year. So I think it's just remarkable and sort of a moment that we're in. Um, I wonder if you'd sort of step back a bit from the third and just put on your Massachusetts or Democratic Party hat and just talk a bit about how that evolution has happened and sort of where where you think it goes from here. Well, more than half the voters have been women for a long time. And in truth, more than half of the managers of campaigns, the finance directors of campaigns, the organizers, women have begun to take their role. It's about time. The only thing that was stopping women from getting more than half the votes is we didn't have enough candidates. And there have been a lot of organizations that have been working on that. By the way, the same trend is true when Nikki Songas got elected and Eileen Donahue joined the race, a city councilor at the time. Everyone said, oh, we can only have one woman. They both did great. And one became state senator and now the city manager. When Catherine Clark and then Karen Spilka joined that race, there was a lot of worry. Oh, we're going to split up the women vote. One of them became uh, is a leader in Congress now and the other is the Senate president. Women are stepping up. And voters, I think it's remarkable, I guess, because of our history, but it's not remarkable. The number are clear. I think what's most important is the fact that they're women we should celebrate because we haven't done a good job, but it's not an issue. It's not the issue. And and I think that's good. Interesting. Uh, I want to transition to something that you're about to be busy with uh, and, and things have kind of bubbled up this summer. It's the newly launched Reason to Believe PAC, which uh, you are serving as the treasurer and the custodian of records, according to the FEC. The the uh, name I of the... go look at them, make sure I got them all. <laughs> <laughs> the the name of the pack actually bears a striking resemblance to Deval Patrick's 2011 autobiography, also called A Reason to Believe. So what's important for people to understand about this pack? And are there tea leaves to be read here? Is this Deval Patrick running for president? It's not. And I mean, just for clarity and honesty, it's it's not about Deval Patrick. Um, a lot of us came together uh, uh, around his campaigns. Um, Governor Patrick didn't know we were launching the pack. Honestly, he didn't. I had to tell him after we filed, and it was, you know, fine. But How'd he react? He was great. You know, Deval Patrick, nothing flusters him. But um, it's uh, his. He has not decided whether he's going to run for president. The good thing about Deval Patrick is no one's ever been able to train him to say anything but the truth. So you can actually take his on-the-record statements as what's in his head. So he says it's on his. It's on his radar screen. He's He's going to decide right now. He's about to launch into the midterms and help candidates all across the country. Um, so this pack is a group of people, not all 
from Deval Patrick. Some of them were in kindergarten when Deval Patrick was running. And, uh, and, but we believe in a certain kind of politics, a stand up for what you believe in, no matter what the polls say, and face to face, grassroots. That's what we believe the Democratic Party needs across America. And we're going to spend some time between now and the end of the thing pushing a, a national effort to drive that kind of politics. But I mean, the relationship with Deval Patrick is unmistakable in the sense that it's both his, both two of his former, both two of his former senior advisors who are sort of leading the charge and the name, as, as Lauren mentioned. So, I mean, what what would the PAC do to support Deval Patrick's candidacy should he decide to either just further explore it or eventually decide to run? Nothing. We're not about Deval Patrick. So you just decided to name well, we, we like Pack after his book? We, we started talking about what we believe. Right? What do we believe? And that's what we're going to try to push in. And, you know, we like the book. We like it. It's not, I mean, I could Google it. I'm sure it's not the first person ever used reason to believe. So I remember when uh, in Governor Patrick's campaign, uh, there was a moment where we said, um, um, uh, yes, we can. And then there was this big story that there was a guy in Chicago who used this thing, yes, we can. They had a, p- a banner of Barack Obama. And we put out a press release that included a page and a half of references. And the most important one, I think, was Bob the Builder. So words are words, and they're important. But I don't think that reason to believe is so unique. Of course, it's part of who we are. We, you know, we came together around a, a, an important candidate and a, a, and a person we love. But this isn't about him. We have enough respect for Deval Patrick to believe that he hasn't decided. And honestly, for me personally, if he runs for president, I'm all in, you know, send let's me to move. Idaho. Yes. I'm ready to organize. All right. Well, actually, let's talk a bit about that. When should we look and what should we look for if you were to decide to? I mean, it seems like the, you know, we're just over a year now from sort of the first voting. Um, what what things would he do? What signs should we be looking for? So the honest answer to that, Steve, is you have to ask him. I don't speak for him. I don't talk to him every day. I trust his judgment. He's got a lot of things he's figuring out. And part of it, he's going to go talk to people across the America to support progressive Democrats. I listen to some of the things he says. He says, I'm going to go places and talk with candidates that are talking to people we don't always talk to in places we don't always go as Democrats, because that's really, uh, um, and I respect that. Talk a little bit about, going back to the pack itself, talk a little bit about some of the candidates that you guys anticipate supporting. Are these uh, individuals around the country? Is this based in Massachusetts? Let's do a little bit of a breakdown of, of the types of so folks had, and candidates. Sure. We had our first meeting the other night in Somerville. It was a blast. Bakari Sellers came. Jennifer Granholm came. Fired up the crowd. And one of the things we believe is that you don't get the best strategy by getting the 10 smartest people in the room. Because who is the ten, who are the 10 smartest people? So we have not chosen any candidates yet. But one of the things we did that we asked that 200 plus people were in the room, another 150 joined us around the country on Facebook Live, to tell us who you're seeing that you think is. We've laid out some general criteria. Number one is uh, we want to go to places where Democrats don't always go. And, and we want to look at particularly women and candidates of color that can be supported. And our general strategy that we're asking people to say we want people to run a grassroots campaign. Someone says, hey, I need an extra 100 bucks to run some more TV ads or do more direct mail. We're probably not the place they should come to look. But if they want to run a grassroots campaign around progressive policies, then we're going to try to figure out how to help them. 
but but choosing that, we really believe that the strength of this will be that information will come from the community of um, Reasonably Pack. We're so we're just starting to get the feedback. I don't know where it's going to go. Interesting. That's like crowdsourcing. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, in terms of fundraising and things like that, obviously packs are deeply involved in money. Is there any sort of fundraising goal ahead of the midterms that you guys are looking at? We have not set a goal. We're going to see what we need and go out and talk to people. We've you know had some a lot of small dollar donations coming in online, which is cool. That's what we like. And we're pushing hard for people who want to advance progressive politics in a grassroots manner around the country. Send us five bucks, 10 bucks. We promise to spend it as wisely as we can, but we don't have any fundraising goals yet. So I wanted to ask you just one last question um, and focus specifically on turnout because obviously grassroots and for those of you who don't know John Walsh's history, first of all, I don't know how that's possible, but uh, you're certainly a legend for grassroots and sort of uh, field, we saw just a, a sort of swells of turnout in certain parts of the state in the primaries, and then other parts were above average, but not just off the charts. What should we look for in November? Is this going to be a huge turnout election, or is it going to be roughly average? I think it's going to be a huge turnout election, and it will it will be mostly in places where Democrats are, are banging the grassroots hard, talking to their neighbors and their doors. I was in Lemonster last night, stumping for uh, two wonderful women who are running for uh, rep. Higgins running for re-election and Sue Shalafu is running to replace Dean Tran. And they had 40, 50 people in a room and we started talking about, and here's the deal. Let's just take Lemister as an example. Like, I don't know what, where that fits in a pollster's analysis of what Massachusetts looks like, but let me tell you some numbers in, in Lemonster. Um, Charlie Baker got 8,000 votes in Lemonster. Donald Trump got about 9,000, essentially the same number. Um, Arthur Coakley got 4,200. Hillary Clinton got 10,000. So there are 5,100 people in Lemonster who theoretically voted for Hillary Clinton that didn't come out in the midterms. Here's the thing. We know who they are. It's public record whether you voted. We have a list of those 5,100 people. And I asked those 40, 50 people last night to look at this list and call your friends. Because some people are busy. They don't always think the midterms. But a lot of those people are sitting home at night scared to death about what's going on with Donald Trump. And while they may put the midterms out of their mind, this year they're worried. We don't have to convince those 5,100 people that Democratic candidates and values are key. We just have to convince them that this election's important. And I think they're ready to believe that. Right. They are there. They are someone sitting watching Rachel Maddow every night praying to God that Trump doesn't get us killed. And we just have to have their friend call and say, hey, this election's important. And so in, in that space, there's lots of why behind the election's important. You know, Charlie Baker's doing a terrible job as governor. I get all the polls. And by the way, I don't want to talk polls too much. I got a super expert here. But, you know, the challenge for a pollster today, I don't mean to tell you anything you don't already know, is who is a likely voter? That's what I'm trying to learn from you. I know. So here's the thing. Capuano, Presley, the polls were right. Just the voters were wrong, right, from the poll. So, like, I look at a poll. She's up four. She's down 14. She wins by 17. So in a place where there's banging politics going on door to door, face to face, friend to friend, there might be a 31-point swing in who shows up. And I see Charlie Baker's up by 27. 31. We could still win this. I'm pretty sure Jay Gonzalez is not going to blow Charlie Baker out of the water, but this is going to be a close election. Everybody was surprised when Ayanna Presley wins. They're going to be surprised when Jay Gonzalez wins. Let's write that down. I'll, I'll bet you. Well, I can't bet you. You're not going to be here. I'll, yeah. bet, you, I'll bet you Diet Coke. <laughs> well, listen, John Walsh, uh, proving that you are still a tried and true Democrat. <laughs> Thank you so much uh, for coming on the horse race. You've convinced us that Lemon Star is a bell uh, is. is a bellwether. Let's go down. 
We usually only have three segments, of course, but there is a poll out this morning, Wednesday morning, as we mentioned during our conversation with George, and frankly, Steve couldn't help himself. That's true. Blame Steve. we got to talk about it. Exactly. This poll comes from Suffolk University in the Boston Globe and looks at the governor's race, the Senate race, ballot questions, and a number of issues. We don't really have time to get into everything today, but Steve, at least give us the highlights. Yeah, so I wanted to look at a couple of the key numbers on this poll because it's the first look at the general election that we've actually had in quite a while. It's the first poll post-primary and the first poll of any kind since June that's actually shown these matchups in a public poll. So starting with the governor's race, they found uh, Charlie Baker with a pretty substantial lead over Jay Gonzalez. So 55% for Baker and 28% for Gonzalez. Um, It's a bit narrower than what we saw, you know, way back in the summer. Um, But there are some differences between this poll and, and back then. This one is the first likely voter poll we've seen. Previous to this, we've been looking at mostly registered voter polls, but it's still a pretty significant lead for Charlie Baker. It's interesting in a couple of ways. One is that Gonzalez and Baker are actually tied among Democrats. Interesting. Um, so it, it's, it's, you know, there's no way to win as a Democrat when you don't win Democrats by a pretty substantial margin. Um, so that's one of the things that Jay Gonzalez is, is experiencing. Um, you can also see that when you look at Charlie Baker's favorable and job approval numbers. Job approval, uh, Charlie Baker actually does better among Democrats than he does among Republicans. And this favor- is something that we've seen in pockets around the state for a while. Absolutely. And in polls around the state, we've seen favorability often about the same. Um, that's just, you, you know, do you have a favorable or unfavorable view of Charlie Baker? We've seen that about the same among Democrats and Republicans often. And that that's true here as well. So really what we're seeing is that that's, you know, Charlie Baker is very popular among Democrats by some measures, not by every measure, even more popular among Democrats. And Jay Gonzalez is going to have to figure out a way to get his own partisans back to his side if he wants to if he wants to be able to catch up. Maybe one of the ways that he can do that is by uniting with Senator Elizabeth Warren, who, as the poll showed, still has a very large lead. Yes, Elizabeth Warren also does still have a very large lead. She has 54 percent to Jeff Deal's 24 percent, so a 30-point lead. Um, Her favorables are exactly where they have been. So we've talked about this before, just how stable and reliable Elizabeth Warren's favorability numbers are. It's always sort of mid-50s-ish, like her, mid-30s-ish, don't like her. Um, And that's how it's been pretty much since she was elected. Jeff Deal had 24 percent of the vote in in his column. So, you know, obviously he still has a long way to go. The thing that's interesting about both of these races is that the candidates are starting to gain a little bit of name recognition, the challengers that is, um, but there's still a long way to go. So 38 percent haven't heard of Jay Gonzalez, Democrat running for governor. 45 percent haven't heard of Jeff Deal, Republican running for Senate. So, you know, you can say, okay, well, now the primary is over. Now people will start paying attention. But time's almost up for, for them to start paying attention. Seven weeks, TikTok. Yeah. And it's not to say it couldn't happen. I mean, we've certainly seen uh, recent cases where polls have, you know, polls this far out haven't predicted what the what ultimately happened on election day. You know, we've seen candidates go viral. We've seen candidates do things which just made their numbers crash, you know, not necessarily just here in Massachusetts, but around the country. So I'm not in any way saying that these races are over, but it is a challenge that the challengers face, that they have to figure out a way to get voters just to even know who they are. Yeah. As, as you said before, polls don't predict the future, but they do represent where the electorate is at that given point. Exactly. And where they are right now is they're still in favor of Baker and Warren and still significant portions of them are still unaware of who the challengers are. Absolutely. So moving past the polling, we have a very special something to watch segment this week. And that's because, as we've talked about for the last two weeks, this is your longtime co-host, Lauren Dzenski's last week with us here at the horse race. So the thing that we'll all be watching this week, us and all listeners to the horse race, is your transition to CNN and Washington, D.C. So first of all, before we get into the many questions that we have, 
Just tell us what you're going to be doing down in Washington. Sure. So I will be working for CNN Politics. I will be on the writing side, not necessarily fully TV. And I will be working on this newsletter called The Point, kind of anchored by Chris Saliza, who's a CNN political analyst. I will also be working on that. It comes out Monday through Friday in the afternoon slash evening as opposed to the mornings of the playbook. So 7 p.m. is generally when it comes out. That's all I can talk about for right now. There might be some more new, interesting, exciting things on the horizon. Um, but yeah, the, the newsletter life continues, but I will be with CNN down in Washington, D.C. It's a very bittersweet transition. I've loved my time here, and but I'm also excited for some new opportunities. And how can fans of the horse race and fans of Lauren Dazinski follow along? Where do they go to subscribe? You can subscribe to the Point newsletter at CNN, uh, and you will see my writing there very soon. All right. Well, we have a couple retrospective questions that we want to ask you just because you're about to leave us, and you'll be beyond um, beyond our reach. Uh, but but so, You'll so, still be able to get me on Zencaster. If that's a promise. We're definitely having you on in the future as a guest. We'll come up with really just extremely exaggerated titles for for what it is that you do. Yeah, I I better have a great title. Yeah, because you've been on like, you know, 60 times or something like that. So you're like way up there. Um, But anyway, so a couple quick questions. The first one is, what is your favorite story that you've covered since you've been here in Massachusetts? Has to be Boston 2024. The Olympic bid, that was what I was covering when I was back at the Dorchester Reporter, which is my first job out of college. And it was amazing. I worked with Bill Forey. It was the Boston Olympic bid was wild and covering it from a local development perspective from the Dorchester reporter was I was in the catbird seat of all of the action. Yeah, it was like just such a fascinating story, too, that just sort of hit right as you were starting at the Dorchester reporter with a huge Dorchester angle. So, yeah, it was honestly just incredibly lucky timing. Yeah. So how about how about the most surprising thing about covering Massachusetts? You are from Minnesota. Also, as we've often joked about here on the horse race, because I'm from Wisconsin. What was the most surprising thing about covering Massachusetts as someone from outside? Uh, Massachusetts and kind of Massachusetts politics. It's very small towny. Everyone knows each other. Everyone goes back really far. Um, I was always new. Like I, I always kind of had this awareness that because I wasn't from Massachusetts or because I hadn't lived here for 30 years, people didn't know who I was. And not that people needed to know who I was, but there's there's certain inroads that you have to make with building sources, especially in political reporting, where you have to build that trust. And I think that's where the playbook kind of came in, because being in people's inboxes every single day helped create this outreach to people that it would have taken years and years and years to build these bonds. And But because I was there every single morning at 7 a.m., except for those couple times that I overslept, it was literally like four times. It was so few. Uh, but that I think that, that that really helped. But yeah, Massachusetts politics, very small town. Yeah, inbox every morning and obviously on their podcasts every week. Yes, in your ears. <laughs> um, okay, so put you in the hot seat. What is one thing that's better about Minnesota and one thing that's better about Massachusetts? Minnesota is better because of the Minnesota State Fair, hands down, full stop. Uh, the Minnesota State Fair is the greatest thing in the entire world. I will put that on my gravestone. And Massachusetts is wonderful because of all of the different things that you can do so easily here. Proximity to the White Mountains, the Cape, the Berkshires. It's closest to New York. It's everything in Massachusetts is like a two-hour drive away, and I love it. And yeah. It's just such a beautiful state, and I love De- it so much. Definitely so- something I can relate to being from Wisconsin, where everything is a four- or five-hour drive. Totally. Like almost everything. I remember in college, so I went to Boston University, and 
all of my friends were from New York and I talked about how Chicago was super close from Minnesota. It was eight hours away. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yeah. It's Chicago. And then if you go past Chicago, then you're really talking about huge distances. Oh yeah. It's, it's like 14 else. hours to the next big city. It's ridiculous. Yeah, so despite your very impressive resume, you've only actually been at this for, you know, I guess depends on how you count, but not that many years anyway. So uh, before you go, leave other sort of young and aspiring reporters with some words of wisdom about how to make it here in Massachusetts. Oh, shucks. Thanks, Steve. My advice, I guess, uh, number one, journalism is not a what works for one person doesn't work for another person. So my own individual experiences worked for me. But if I tried to replicate the successful path of anyone else, like Anderson Cooper or any of my other esteemed colleagues, uh, I would not be able to, to do what they have done. So there's there's no one beaten path. Also, I tried to make sure that I was always following something that I was passionate about, even when I was working. The the horse race is a really good example of that. Like neither you nor I get paid for this, but it's something that I've enjoyed putting my resources and effort into. And I feel like I have benefited from that. The relay, the newsletter that I started at the Dorchester Reporter to cover the Boston Olympic bid that got me on Politico's radar, that was kind of a passion side project. And, and I think authenticity is so important. And if you can be legitimately interested in what you're doing, people want to be around that. And so that at least has kind of been my guiding uh, premise. And, you know, I, I love the things that I do and I love journalism. And so I've just kind of tried to go whole hog into that. Yeah, that's that's a, a great tip, and I one with which I totally agree. That sometimes, it's, and just to, I guess even emphasize one a bit more, that sometimes it is the side projects that turn into things that you don't necessarily expect. A hundred percent. Well, we will miss you very much here at the horse race. But before we wrap up, we have one thing left to do, and that of course is trivia. 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 Yes. So last week's question was mailer related, and the question is: the first U.S. postal zip code was created here in Massachusetts. What town did it cover, and what was the five digit? numerical sequence? The answer is Agawam. And the, uh, the zip code, the postal code was 01001. As I guess it would be when you're the first one. I guess so. I would have thought it was like 00001. Yeah. Well, who knows? Sorry, <laughs> Not Agawam. Not something we know anything about. <laughs> um, but anyway, now on to this week's question. And the question is, the horse race is not Lauren Dzinski's first racing-related weekly publication. What was the name of the newsletter she published previously? And what was the subject? Yeah. Thank you, Steve. Being the subject of a trivia question is the greatest honor that I could possibly receive. It's our parting gift to you. Aww. Cookies, which if you follow Twitter, there were Fig Newtons. There are actually freshly baked goods that yeah. somebody brought us for the first time ever. Yeah, thank you, Amy Ward-Whedon, for the what I assume to be delicious. I didn't want to eat them while I was doing the podcast because that would be terrible for you listeners to hear. Um, but A plate of homemade cookies. A plate of homemade Toll House chocolate chip and oatmeal cookies. I'm so excited. So we're going to compare them to the Fig Newtons and finally resolve the question, which one is better? Exactly. But sadly, that is all the time we have for this week. I'm Steve Cazella, president of the Massing Polling Group. And I'm Lauren Dzinski of Politico, signing off for the last time. Our producer this week is Jameson Johnson. Find us wherever you get your podcasts. And thank you. Seriously, really, thank you all for listening. (laughs) 